Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. We're in a series where we're addressing some of the problems in South Africa that they're facing in their future and in their past. And we're going to be looking at this because really all the problems of the world stem from some very basic fundamental concepts about life, about God, about what God really is, about what God really wants for us, what he is really trying to do in our lives through the inspiration and revelation of the Holy Scriptures and the, you know, the peculiar people that uh, God has appointed and anointed and sent to us to explain the mysteries of life. And uh, that uh, there's several places in the Bible where they talk about peculiar people, both the Levites and uh, who are the church in the wilderness appointed by Moses and the early church appointed by Christ were called out people to be a peculiar people to serve the people who would repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what Christians were doing is very important. A lot of people today are calling themselves Christians and they may have certain elements of Christianity in their life. But are they really Christians? Are they really following Christ? If you follow Christ uh, two hours a day, but uh, 22 hours a day, you're not following Christ. You're actually going another direction. Then you're not really following Christ. Uh, you're you're fooling yourself uh, with token um, visible uh, activities that uh, you think are Christ-like, and uh, you're not. You're missing the mark. And so, really, and you know, in throughout the Gospels, throughout the Epistles. We are warned over and over again that we need to measure our faith by what we're doing. You know, we're not saved by works, but if we're not doing the works of Christ, if we're not doing what the, you know, the doers of the word would be doing, if we're doing something contrary to Christ, then the claim that we have faith in Christ is a lie and we are liars. And that's what the Bible tells us. And it tells us that over and over again. Uh, and it also warns against the fact that we will be under a strong delusion. And there were people at the time of Christ that were under a strong delusion. There were people in 100 AD, 200 AD, 300 AD that were under strong delusions. And there were people who were actually the faithful of Christ. So who is who? Uh, are you one of the faithful of Christ or are you under a strong delusion? Well, that's a pretty darn important question. And we should take a really close look at what we're doing to figure out if what we're doing coincides and is compatible with the teachings of Christ. Because what I look out at many of the churches today, they're not doing. Many people claiming to be Christians are not doing what Christ said to do, and certainly not doing what the early church did. As a matter of fact, in many cases, uh, and it tells us this, that this will be the case. Many shall claim to be Christians. Many shall 
say they are anointed of God and, and, and get many people to follow them. And uh, they are actually workers of iniquity. They are actually doing the absolute opposite of what Christ said to do. And, of course, we saw the Pharisees at the time of Jesus Christ were doing absolutely the opposite of what Moses said to do. And that's why Jesus said, if you really knew Moses, you'd know me because I'm telling you what Moses said. Moses did not tell the people that covet their neighbor's goods to the agency of men who exercise authority. And Christ said the same thing. Moses did say, love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said the same thing, to love thy neighbor as thyself. Both Israel and the early church operated by free will offerings. We call it charity in the New Testament. They call it free will offerings in the Old Testament. That sacrifice that came with making those offerings uh, was called Corban. And the Corban of the Pharisees at that time was making the word of God to none effect. Uh, they were killing sheep and they were burning them up and they were taking care of the social welfare of the people. But the way in which they were doing it was not the way of God. And unfortunately today, many of the people in the modern church are not going according to the ways of God. Just a hundred years ago, the church was supporting the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity and uh, taking care of most of the welfare of the people, certainly most of the welfare that was required in the early church amongst Christians. But today, most of the welfare of modern Christians, and uh, especially the industrialized, um, you know, first world countries of the world, is taken care of by men who exercise authority by compelling the sacrifices of the people through what we call taxation and then supposedly taking care of the needy through what they call entitlements. And this is what Nimrod did, it's what Cain did, it's what Sodom did, it's what Caesar was doing at that time, and it's what Herod was implementing through the Pharisees at that time. And that was making the word of God to none effect because you're not supposed to do it by force. You're supposed to do it by charity. That's a very simple concept. But it is astounding how many people can hear that and just turn their brains off. That can't be so, they think. They cannot accept that. And in the days to come, I'm going to go into these mysteries of the kingdom in greater detail, but I'm going to kind of I have to introduce it a little at a time because to to just lay it out like I just did is like attacking their delusion. It's not what I'm doing. I'm just speaking the truth. But they will receive it as an attack and they will be they will close their mind to anything else that I say because it's not what they want to hear. But this ministry is not a ministry that is out to tickle your ears. Uh, this ministry is out to call you to repentance to think a different way to go a different way and unfortunately a lot of people have to turn around turn around their thinking repent that's what repenting is turning around your thinking and think a different way so are you following the blessed strategies of christ like the early christians were doing are you following the way through love of one another or the way of the world. 
and the fathers of the earth. And those men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. Christ commanded his disciples to make the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands in a network. And in that network, they rightly divided the bread from house to house with ministers who did not exercise authority but exercised charity. I know somebody who's headed to uh, one of the Feast of Tabernacles that they have all over the country this time of year, depending on what calendar you're using. And, uh, you know, I actually saw in Montana and Wyoming, uh, they they were actually having blizzards in places that were just like uh, socking in the roads. Uh, if If you were having tabernacles up there, <laughs> you might be in a lot of trouble. Uh, so we have the the fall feast we have at what we call the burning bush festival and we might move the date around at times but uh, we have it when it's really just late summer because we've had it according to the uh, different jewish calendars at times and it put it back up here in the high deserts at 4,000 feet feet it put it in a very cold period of time and some people have to go so far to get here that uh, we're actually putting their life at risk as if they have to travel over the mountains uh, during snowstorms after the festival. That's not a good thing. So, yeah, it's not the calendar. It's it's not all these rituals and uh, ceremonies that people apply because they go and look at the Hebrew. It was the purpose of the festival, the purpose of Pentecost, was to shore up that network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. So if you're going to the festivals, uh, wherever they are, and they're not creating an international network of charity to take care of all the social welfare of those gathering at Tabernacles or Pentecost or any of these ancient feasts, then you are not celebrating Tabernacles. You are not doing what the the entire purpose of the festival was. I mean, the, the essential purpose of the festival was. There were multiple purposes, and we've talked about that before. So, anyway, what the purpose is, is to become that peculiar people. You know, early church knew that they were taking over the role and the administration of a government appointed by Jesus Christ, appointed by God, the government of God was taken away from the Pharisees who said they had no king but Caesar and appointed to the church. They called out, the men that Jesus called out, the ones who stayed faithful. And they were to rightly divide the bread from house to house. And that's what they were doing. And the people no longer applied to Caesar or Herod or the Pharisees for their uh, welfare. They were cast out. They were separate. They were peculiar people seeking the ways of God. So if you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, how can you be doing that? How can you be doing what the early church was doing? And if your ministers are not requiring you to do that, to sit down in those uh, intimate networks of faith, hope, and charity, then how can they say that they are uh, teachers of the doctrines of Christ. Because very few times did Jesus give strict 
commands and even use that word commanded and that's one of them so anyway back to south africa and looking at some of the issues that have uh, we've talked about already in previous shows and uh, just to give a really quick sum up of some of the things we had a question about uh, we have so many people that call themselves christians uh, what makes you a Christian? Well, you, a Christian is a follower of Christ, and we just talked about that. So that should give you kind of an idea of you have to be doing what Christ said to do, which is what the early church was doing. And if your church isn't doing that uh, anymore, then there's a serious problem. And uh, you may have to rethink what you have come to think in this generation, what the church really is. And uh, one of the first questions we had was there are so many different denominations. I mean, like 40,000 different denominations. And it is our, uh, I, I hate to say our teachings, because really we just want to teach what Christ taught. And But it, it is our view that there is only one denominator of Christianity, and that is Christ. So that is the measuring rod. You have to look at what Christ said to do and ask is your church doing what Christ said to do? And is it doing what Christ said to do in the way that Christ said to do it? Because that's what Christianity was called, the way. And if it is not, then you really aren't a Christian. You may be a Christian by lots of other people's labels, but how can you be calling yourself a follower of Christ? You know, I mean, in John, First uh, John it tells us that... You know, uh, or James says, by your works you shall know them. And John says that if if you're not keeping his commandments, including the one about not coveting your neighbor's goods, then you're a liar. You're not really a follower of Christ. And the good news about that is, is you get to change. If you can hear my voice, you can still change. If you if you're dead in the grave, you're not going to do much changing. So the the good news is what you can hear now. It's not what you were told. It's it's what Christ told us and is still valid and true today. So the church, in its most general sense, is the religious society founded and established by Jesus Christ. So therefore, it has to receive, preserve, and propagate. His doctrines and ordinances. His ordinances are what he commanded us to do, which is to love one another. And of course, religion, religion just 200 years ago, back when the church was actually doing much of what Christ said to do, religion was defined as the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. Now, that duty to God and your fellow man is, again, defined by Jesus Christ. But that's what the church was implementing, is the performance of that duty. It was still rightly dividing the bread, hopefully, rightfully. The real church was still hopefully dividing that bread, the contributions of the people from house to house, in a system of faith, hope, and charity, in a system uh, created... Uh, or instituted by Christ, but then established by the actions and beliefs and faith of the people, for the people, and by the people. Because 
kingdom of heaven is within you. And if it really is within you, you will be taking care of one another. You won't be oppressing the stranger in your midst. You will be seeking the wisdom of Christ in all things. And and he will write upon your heart and, and minds. And that's the practice of pure religion. Taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And not through the force, fear, and violence of governments. And somehow or other, we got to thinking that that was okay. So anyway, we, we talked about uh, the fact that the, the government of God is what Christianity is all about. We are to govern ourselves according to the ways of Christ. And I, I hardly know a church that has not, in some way or another, gone away from the ways of Christ. I can't say I haven't, I don't know all churches, but all, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that just about every church has some area of their activities that needs to be in a process of repentance and changing. And uh, that's just because none of us are perfect. We're all sinners. And so anyway, when I'm talking to the people of South Africa, uh, I'm also talking to the people everywhere because we're all repeating the same problems over and over again. Uh, you know, and if you're going to be a friend to Christ, you have to do whatever he commanded you. And one of the things he commanded his ministers is to make the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands. And the book, Thy Kingdom Come, free online, is telling you and showing you that this is how the early church was organized. And most free societies were organized in the same way. So, that organization of society is part of what we call culture. And culture is the custom, arts, social institutions... Uh, and achievements of a, a particular nation or people regarded collectively which produce the attitudes uh, though uh, patterns and behavior and characteristics of a particular or peculiar social group. And of course that's what the early Christianity was. It was this peculiar people which it says in both Peter and Titus, and then you can go into Deuteronomy and see the same reference. We are supposed to be this peculiar people, this this priesthood. That uh, and, and then you have to understand what priesthood is. It's not what most priests are, because <laughs> most priests, uh, most of what we see posing as priests today, are not doing what the early church did. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they're doing quite the opposite. Uh, many cases, unfortunately. And so, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Polybius about 150 years before Christ. So, showing you this idea of taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, rather than force, fear, and violence, has been a controversial topic and an important topic throughout the history of mankind. And so, you can go back 150 years before Christ and you'll see Polybius saying, The masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of a rule of force and therefore violence. Now, this, of course, is a translation. But taxing your neighbor in order to have free education, taxing your neighbor in order to have social security or social welfare, taxing your neighbor, no matter how, you know, you think, well, we're just going to tax my rich neighbors. But it's still 
force and violence. It's not, you cannot become a free people under God, receiving the grace of God, if you want to rule over your neighbor. this That's what Cain wanted to do. That's what Nimrod wanted to do. That's what Pharaoh ended up doing. That's what Caesar was doing. That's what Saul started doing, forcing an offering. You can't do that unless you are willing to violate the precepts of Christ, the precepts of Moses even. The people, having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others, Polybius goes on to say, and to depend for their livelihood and the, on the property of others, institute the rule of violence. And now, uniting their forces, massacre, banish, and plunder until they degenerate. Now, that's an important word. Degenerate again into perfect savages and find once more a master and a monarch. Now, this, this is the exact same message as John the Baptist. Who's saying that, you know, everybody's saying that they were trying to establish the kingdom of heaven, which is the utopia that everybody thinks that we can create ourselves through force. This is what it's talking about in the Bible when you look at those quotes around John the Baptist. They're trying to establish that by force. But John the Baptist said, no, if you have two coats and your neighbor has none, share. Do the same in meats. And this is what the early church was doing. And this is what we've gotten away from. We're doing it by force instead of by charity. So, repenting and seeking the kingdom of God means to go to church and say, we're going to sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands. We're going to start taking care of our own social welfare through faith, hope, and charity. And if your minister does not want to do that, you know pretty sure that your minister is not really a man of God. Certainly not a minister of Christ. He is not one of those peculiar people who want to live by faith, hope, and charity. He still wants to live by force. And uh, so anyway, uh, that would give you an idea that you need to come together in a different network. uh, Because your minister is suffering under some sort of psychosis where he actually thinks that he is a minister of Christ. And he is doing contrary to what Christ said to do. Now, we can hope and we can pray and we can work up to this a little at a time and maybe we can turn him around. But the reality is this is the conflict everywhere in society and through history is this conflict of Cain and Abel, of you're going to be a good shepherd or you're going to force the offerings of the people. You're you're going to plow the Adama and compel them or you're going to be a good shepherd and just simply lead them in the, you know, he leadeth me besides the still waters and the, uh, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And uh, I know a little bit about being a shepherd and what that means and what that's trying to teach you. But we're going to continue into another question that came out of South Africa when we return. That talks about the book of Matthew and Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God at hand, and what that actually looks like on earth when we return to Keys of the Kingdom after a brief break. Well, welcome back. So, we've talked just briefly about some of the, uh, or at least the, the answer to the question I'm about to repeat here. 
It says, in the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ mentioned that the kingdom of God was at hand and that that we should first seek that kingdom of God and his righteousness. So he asked, what on earth was he talking about? And uh, am I not in the kingdom already when I go to church on Sunday? Or you could ask that a lot of different ways. You know, when I say I repent and when I say I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, you can say you believe in Jesus Christ, but when you say something, you're also saying it not only with your lips, but with your actions, which is why Christ says, not those who just say, Lord, Lord, but those who do it the will of the Father. If you say you believe in Jesus, but you're not doing what Jesus said to do, then you're just lying to yourself. That's why John says you're a liar if you're you're not keeping the commandments. And those commandments of Christ are what he dictated, his doctrines, his ordinances, what he said for us to do. And what he said was to seek that kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, the kingdom of God was from generation to generation. It's been around since the days of Cain and Abel. It's the right to be ruled by God. And, you know, Cain went off and started a city-state. Nimrod did something similar. Pharaoh ended up ruling over the people because they went into the bondage uh, to Pharaoh because they had sold their own brother into bondage. And that's actually how we go into bondage today. But it's part of that process that we see Polybius talking about where we're degenerated by following certain cultural practices certain ways in our society. And it changes the way we think. It changes the way we perceive things. And this is why if you go back to Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 8, the people say they want to have a ruler who can exercise authority, a central power or authority, and fight their battles for them. And that was considered a rejection of God, but it was also considered the result of a previous rejection of God that he should not reign over them. So how does God reign over you? You read the Bible and you do what it says? Well, maybe. But it's really about reigning over your heart and your mind. And this degeneration is cutting you off from that power of God to rule over your heart and mind. And so that degeneration comes through covetous practices, which is why it was so important that we not pursue the covetous practices of Cain, Nimrod, Sodom, and all these other nations. And what the Levites had degenerated already at the time of Christ, and they were doing many things that were contrary to what Levites were supposed to be doing. The Levites, again, were the church in the wilderness. They were the called out who ended up rightly dividing the bread from house to house and and serving the tabernacles of the congregation, which is the tents of the congregation, the individual homes of the congregation. And they did this through a pattern of tens, hundreds, and thousands, and through what the Old Testament calls free will offerings. And they weren't doing that anymore. They weren't doing that and a lot of other things anymore. And Christ came along and said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, because what they're doing was not bearing fruit. It was actually making the word of God to none effect. And I'm going to appoint it to another group. And we see him appointing it to the apostles. Who were the early church. The early called out. 
and and you go read Jerome, uh, who says bishops, presbyters, deacons occupy in the church the same position as those which were occupied by Aaron and his sons and the Levites in the temple. And they were doing the same roles. They were providing the same oversight, the same rightly dividing of the bread from house to house, uh, a system of pure religion, taking care of one another, unspotted by the world, the constitutional orders of Cain, Nimrod, etc. They were, they were providing all their social welfare through faith, hope, and charity. None of their social welfare through the free bread of Rome. None of their social welfare through the forced contributions of authoritarian men who call themselves benefactors who offer you entitlements. Because if you do, if you go that way, you will become merchandise and you will curse your children with debt. Every nation has already done this. South Africa has done that. And they, they have done that. Now, now South Africa has a little bit different situation. Uh, they have a huge population that is of one race. And we, we imagine sometimes that the people are out there saying that they're going to take the land away from the white farmers and all this kind of stuff. Now, we already talked about the fact that the Afrikaners, the Dutch, who came there to South Africa were not colonists. Uh, they were settlers. They were moving into this country looking for uninhabited land and, and trying to find a place to live a different way. And they had a lot of noble ideas in the way they were doing it. And they weren't going around oppressing all the people wherever they were going. They weren't stealing and robbing the land. If you go back and you actually study the history, you'll find out. Now, there was another group that came to South Africa, which were the English. And they were colonists. But at times, you find the English actually fighting the Dutch. And and I I, I hate to even put people into these categories as Dutch or English or Zulus or some of the other tribes that are in Africa because even amongst the Zulus, even amongst the Dutch, even amongst the English, you will find both good and bad men. This is always the way it was. It wasn't like all the white people who came to America were bad and all the Indians were saints. The Indians were killing each other and stealing each other's land and kidnapping each other and wiping out whole tribes they had a whole philosophy in their five nations and seven nation groups that of manifest destiny. And I believe that some of those ideas that they had came out of some good teachings. But because there are always good and bad people in every race or tribe or nation, they begin to, uh, to undermine the true teachings. And this is what we see in Christianity today. There's a lot of good people in Christianity that are doing the wrong things because they have been deceived. And this is why the the New Testament talks so much about guarding yourself against deception. So now we're bringing out some of those deceptions. And if you repent, start thinking that different way, that way of John the Baptist, the way of Jesus Christ, the way of the early church, the way of the early Levites, and start taking care of one another in what was called pure religion, which is the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man through faith, hope, and charity, rather than force, fear, and violence, your brains will be changed. Your your culture will alter its path. <laughs> you, will, you will be culturally appropriating the way of Christ. 
and it will change you. One of the things that, uh, you know, you, you had, uh, you know, I mentioned the fact that the uh, Afrikaner, the Dutch, were actually not colonists. They were people who were moving, looking for another place to settle, another place to set up a government of God. And they had some good ideas and some bad ideas and some good people and some bad people. But uh, they generally were a pretty noble group of people that were going out there and suffering tremendous hardships to establish themselves in another area. There was another group that came down uh, from the north, which was the Zulus, and they were not colonists either. They were coming down to settle a lot of the the African, South African plateau there. And, uh, you know, we talked about this before, that under a certain governmental rulership, was it Shaka or whatever his name was, they instituted a, a, a system of just annihilating millions of people. Very, very, they were just trying to steal land and oppress the people. Now, that doesn't mean all Zulus are that way today. Those are what people were doing back then, and there were probably people that didn't want that, even in the Zulu tribes, but as a as a people they moved in that direction and they for at least a generation there or so that's what they were doing and that that was uh, terrible to the, the the people that were already there the other you know when people say blacks that's just such a terrible thing it's like everybody who's black is the same way uh, or everybody who's zulu is the same way it it is not that way it, that you have to deal with people on an individual basis and stop group thinking. Group thinking will lead you in a very dangerous area. Christianity is a religion of individuals who come together as individuals and walk together as individuals. And the only way you can do that is if you create a cultural system of free will offerings. Nobody is in charge of everybody. Nobody can say, oh, we're all going to go to war and you have to go to war. Uh, nobody's going to say everybody has to contribute. We're not going to force your offerings. It is a different kind of system and it creates a different kind of mindset. It, and it allows God to write upon your heart and upon your mind. And you have to take the responsibility for yourself without oppressing anybody else. And so that's that's a key element of the righteousness of God. You cannot be a free people. Unless you're extending freedom to others. So one of the things that the South African government did back during the apartheid period, which was actually a very short period of time. That's not the way they started. Uh, they, they used tax money to help out the blacks of society. Uh, you know, the black community. And then they created this apartheid where the blacks were separate. And they built hospitals and they built schools. Now, this wasn't stopping the blacks from improving those schools and improving those hospitals. It's just this is what the the white-taxed people were doing. They were funding all these benefit programs. But they were doing it through taxation. And that alters the thinking not only of those who are giving through taxation, but it alters the thinking of those who are receiving because there's another spirit involved. That was a huge mistake. Uh, but that can be repaired. All you have to do is repent and start doing things the right way. Stop 
taking care of one another through taxation. Stop giving men power to rule over you and stop giving men power to rule over your neighbor. And that will separate you out. That will make you, you don't need imposed apartheid. That will separate you out. And you will find people of both races on one side and people of both races on the other side. Because that is the division of the goats and the sheep. Are you going to live by faith, hope, and charity? Or are you going to live by force, fear, and violence? Because without doing it the way God says, you will not have the grace covering of God. And the more you do it the way God says, and this is an ongoing lesson that we have to all learn. But Jesus took that kingdom from the Pharisees because they would not learn that lesson. And he did it with the words of their own mouth. They said, we have no king but Caesar. They wanted the free bread of Caesar. They wanted the protection of Caesar. They wanted the benefits of Caesar. They feared having this system of faith, hope, and charity and depending not upon entitlements, but upon the love of one another. They were afraid of that. And what happened was all the most industrial uh industrious, uh, uh, caring, uh, competent, uh, family-oriented, community-oriented people moved over courageously to Christianity. And the people who want, were in love with power and control and entitlements all stayed over in this other system. And uh, that uh, had been set up by the Pharisees. And Christ didn't have to destroy that system. But we see the early church actually working in the temple. Rightly dividing the bread from house to house. They were the new government. And and you actually see people trying to, you know, get over. You know, we're having an election here coming up in the United States. And, um, you know, there, there's somebody who's supposedly going to be appointed to the Supreme Court which is another whole topic. We could explain what that is all about, how Christ condemned such ideas and allowed such ideas, but told you what would come of such ideas. But anyway, they're trying to delay his appointment through all kinds of shenanigans so that they hoping that their people will be elected and they will be able to vote in somebody who thinks the way they think. And uh, so there's this huge controversy going on and all kinds of ridiculous stuff going on in, in the news and stuff. And the people are being just manipulated left and right by the media and by, you know, unsubstantiated claims and stories. And, and they're just and they won't listen to reason. Many of them won't listen to reason. And not that those who will listen to reason on this topic listen to reason on every topic. But it's actually degenerating the people. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they will completely recover from this. But in the kingdom of God, you're not centralizing such judgment and power. You're redistributing it amongst the people. But yet, how do you come together with everybody is independently? That's where your rights are. Your rights are individual rights granted to you by God. They're not granted to you by government. But if you eat at the table of men who exercise authority one over the other, eat at the table of rulers, and it tells you this in Proverbs, and it tells you this in Psalms. Uh, Peter uh, says it. Uh, Paul uh, quotes um, David who says it. What should have been for your welfare has become a snare. 
And he talks about this table that we eat of, of men who exercise authority. And we're warned that if we have are given to this appetite that Polybius is talking about, to put a knife to your throat and uh, to beware of the one purse, which is socialism, uh, because it runs towards evil. So we're given all these warnings. Your your general ministers don't understand that. They're not preaching these things. They're not even telling you these quotes. They're promoting their own. They want you to belong to their church. I don't want you to belong to my church. I want you to belong to Christ. I want your heart to belong to Christ. I want your mind to belong to Christ. And through that Christ, which is actually the word anointing, God will write upon your heart and your mind. But how do you walk together as a people and with the grace of God if you don't come together? Uh, if you don't uh, do what Christ said. Now, you know, in Luke twenty-two eighteen, he says, For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. After his resurrection, he's coming out and saying, What do you got to eat? He's eating uh, fish, he's eating bread, he's eating honey. Uh, you know, he, he's drinking wine with them. Is he in the kingdom? Yes, he is. Because he appointed the kingdom and these are the people who end up going out, receiving the Holy Spirit, going out and boldly preaching this other form of government. You, All the, the historians and the teachers want you to think that somehow or other the Jews did not accept Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, they, this is one of the things that the kingdom was postponed. That is not the case. The Jews by the thousand. We see it right there in the text. Pentecost. Thousands of Jews accepted Jesus Christ as their king. That's what Christ is. The anointed, the Messiah, the Messiah, the king. But he's a king that came to wash your feet, not to rule over you. He wants God to rule over you in your hearts and in your minds. And one of the ways you can tell that God is doing that is that you're actually trying to come together in the pattern that Christ commanded to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And if you will take care of one another in faith, hope, and charity, all your social welfare operating through this system of charity rather than force, through the Corbin of Christ rather than the Corbin of Caesar, then you will receive the extra strength and enlightenment and power and grace that comes with that peculiar people that is invincible to all the evil of the world. And that evil of the world is not a matter of race. It's not, It's this is one of the things, This these peculiar people that they talk about in Titus and talk about in, um, in, in uh, Peter and they are people that are priests to all nations uh, because they're showing that there is another way that's not based on force and violence. And the people in South Africa are facing what, you know, if there is another crush, that's what they called it, at least the translation of what they called it was the crushing. And uh, if they have another one of those, millions upon millions of people on both sides will die. And evil loves that, wants to see that conflict, wants to see, you know, that's what you see. This is actually the evil that wants to come into this world and control things is bubbling up as you see these shooters that go into schools and 
libraries and and uh, gun-free zones, and they kill as many people as they can, and then they kill themselves. It is a destructive spirit that is actually invading the hearts and minds of the people. If you want a defense against that destructive spirit, you have to walk in forgiveness. You have to walk in love for one another. Love your families, love your neighbor as yourself, and even love your enemy. And and you know, we're going to talk more about that. What does that mean, love your enemy? That is that is how you cast out the demons. That is how you weaken the evil as it, it marches towards you, it charges towards you. Is that you you project love in its direction, but not just the love that we're commonly taught today in in the media and even in many of the churches. It's not a sucking love. It's it's the love that Christ had. Christ had a love that sacrificed himself, sacrificed his pride, allowed himself to be crucified and stripped and beaten and spit upon, and still would not hold animosity, would, you know, uh, pray for their forgiveness, pray for their repentance, even when this is happening to them. You, you, most people do not realize the power of that. Because that is the power over life and death. It is over the evil of the world. And it will cause uh, thousands to turn and run the other direction uh, when when they're faced with that love of Christ. And, and now talking about it does it injustice. You, you can't really understand what that really is like simply by talking about it. You have to live it. I cannot open your eyes. This is not an intellectual journey. Most of the problem is you're carrying too much of your intellect with you because in that intellect you're also carrying your animosity and hatred and anger and fear. Anger and fear are the same thing. It's just different manifestations of the same thing. And that thing is judgment of others. Leave judgment to God. You need to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You need to seek coming together to simply take care of one another in every aspect of your life. And that will bring you to the kingdom. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. When the apostles were born of the Spirit and the baptism, not of water, but of fire, they they had been going through a great deal. They had been not just studying catechisms and doctrines and interpretations of men. They had been looking into their own hearts and, and go, going and turning around another way. They were all alone against people who had blood in their hearts. But when they came out on Pentecost, after that baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, they were bold. The same men who had crucified Christ did not lay hands on them. And and, uh, not for a long time. And they, they allowed Christianity to start taking root. In the hearts and minds of everybody else. So we have a lot of teachings about how all the apostles were eventually martyred. But all that is not necessarily in the biblical text. And some of that is folklore. 
but the reality is is that uh you you like Christ can face unbelievable enemies Christ allowed them to do what they did to him he could have stopped it at any time but he was showing the ultimate faith that knew no greater love hath a man to but to lay down his life for his fellow man and that's what Christ was doing he was laying down his life that you might be saved he was setting in the motion the kingdom of God and the power to appoint that kingdom of God to the early church. To, But the problem today is that the Christians are not doing what the early Christians were doing. When you got the baptism of Jesus Christ on Pentecost, you could no longer receive any of the benefits offered to you by the Corbin of the Pharisees, which was a government system of welfare. They had to completely move over to this other system overnight. So anyway, we'll talk more about that and go on to another question, question four, and we'll answer that when we come back to Keys the Kingdom after another brief break. So stay tuned, and we'll talk about that. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're we're addressing some of the questions that came to us by way of South Africa, and uh, we'd like to see more people join the network there. And form congregations. Now, joining the network, we have these email groups that we allow everybody to join based on geography. So if you're in Africa, there's one email group that covers all of Africa. So that also covers South Africa. And if we get, if we get over a hundred or 150 people on that group and, it, and, and there starts to be too many emails, then we'll start dividing it off into different areas. But we, we won't really do that until people actually form the living network, which is form those free will assemblies, those uh, free assemblies that are congregations of record, where they're actually sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and are starting to do what Christ said to do. And if they start doing that, then we can start dividing the email groups so that they continue to become effective, but not separating them from communicating because what happens is that each of those different congregations they start communicating in within their congregation and with through their minister with other congregations and not just communicating where we're all talking about religion but communicating we have a lot of information we, we offer all that information for free most of the people go to our websites at preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org it, they find it kind of overwhelming because there is so much information there. So many, I mean, the thousands of footnotes, hundreds of articles, and hundreds and hundreds of recordings. Uh, where do you go? Well, we have search engines there, but you're to, we've created this so that you can go to one another and each of you can help one another. We are impoverished with information. We have all kinds of information that's not true. And we have all kinds of money that's not have any value. <laughs> and a lot of the information we have doesn't have any value. But the real valuable information, most people don't have access to. So they're, they're impoverished when it comes to the truth about things. But if you seek that, the best way to seek that is to teach others. I was talking to a teacher from Sweden and, uh, you know, they, they actually have their ninth graders that they, they don't, 
they're not allowed to have homeschooling in Sweden, so they have private schools for those people who would like to do homeschooling. And uh, the ninth graders will actually go into the first and second graders and help them. because And they'll do this with other, other grades as well because it's in sharing information that you really learn the information. So we've created a system of network where we're not going to be your teachers. You you teach one another, talk with one another, share with one another. And you do this not only in information, but in actual helping one another. But you don't do that in the email groups. The email groups are just to help you form that living network of tens, hundreds, and thousands. And then that's where you're really going to start learning. Now, we've We've laid out a huge resource of information with, like I say, thousands of footnotes so you can do your own research and check things out. But it's that interaction, that time you spend caring for others is really going to make the difference. That that is, And the early church had to do that right out of the box. So here's this question that came from South Africa. I have been born into Christianity and have always gone to church on Sunday where we sang songs, listened to the pastor preach uh, his sermons. Did uh, did the early church of the apostles operate the same way, and are we still following the way of Christ? Well, we've just talked a great deal about some of the ways of Christ that we're not doing anymore. But what did a church meeting look like in the early days of Christianity? And we actually have... The Apology of Justin, who talks about what they did in that early church. And they had somebody they called a president. It was probably a word like uh, uh, principas, and that's translated into president from the original Greek text. Uh, Justin was a Greek scholar who lived about 150 A.D. So this is very early church writings. And he wrote an apology to Antonius Pius, who was one of the emperors of Rome. He was the emperor almost, I think, right before Marcus Aurelius. So that gives you a little time frame. He actually uh, was a mentor to Marcus Aurelius. And uh, he also was a great persecutor of the church. <laughs> and so here you got Justin, who is known as Justin the Martyr, writing uh, Antonius Pius uh, to explain to him how Christianity works and why was he needing to explain this? Because, you know, one of the things that's just astounding is that most Christians, well, Christians were actually, one of the charges against Christians is that they were atheists. That's right. That the Roman government charged Christians with the crime of atheism. And now, atheism wasn't always a crime, but it became that way. And what atheism was is that you did not pick your supreme court justice (laughs) i mean that's really that that is really a simplistic way of putting it but the gods of rome were not the statues those were just representing uh, the temples themselves those were all government buildings providing government benefits your free bread that came to you by way of the temple uh, the, the free health care that they offered under Nerva, that came to you by way of the temple. Those are all managed because that was all religion. Religion, remember, was the pious performance of your duty to the gods and your fellow man. Who are the gods and why do you have duty to the gods? These were actually the ruling judges of Rome. There were imperial gods and there were 
local gods. And those local gods, gods and imperial gods were judges who decided either imperial matters or local matters. And they had ways of electing and appointing these gods. And I'm saying gods there because the word theos was a common address to all the judges in courts of law at the time of Jesus Christ. And even today in the United States, we have this painting in in uh, Washington, D.C., in the Capitol Dome that says that the apotheosis of Washington. And it says on the U.S. government's website that it literally raises Washington to the rank of God. Well, of course, now Washington didn't put that up there. But what they're, they're actually, the apotheos means a pointer of gods, and that was an office held by the Roman emperors, and what they were actually doing is appointing the judges throughout the empire, which brings this whole conflict that we're seeing here in the United States at this time about Kavanaugh, that he is going to become one of the Supreme Court gods who are going to decide what is good and evil, and so the Democrats want somebody else, and the Republicans want him. Now, I actually have some serious, I, I think the guy's probably a good guy and all these accusations are against him are not true. But the reality is when you look at some of his decisions and some of the things that he did, which is, includes helping write the Patriot Act, I have a serious problem with the way in which he interprets a great deal of what we call law today. He, I'm not sure he will always decide good and evil. I don't know. But I also know the answer is not in conflicting about whether he's going to get elected or appointed or whatever, but is in me personally turning around and seeking this government of Christ, this kingdom of God, this what the early church was doing. So back to Justin, he was trying to tell this emperor of Rome, Antonius Pius, how the church operated, how what it did. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but uh, you you can find it. It's in uh, his chapter 65 and 67 of his writings. And it says, after the president of the meeting, which is Principus, remember the ministers of Christ cannot exercise authority one over the other. So if you use a word like president, it doesn't mean president like you see the United States, who is the chief executive officer who does exercise authority one over the other. Bill Clinton said it was the supreme <laughs> authority of the people. But uh, in the church, that would not be the case. He does not exercise authority one over the other because we're forbidden to do that. So, But he may execute something, and that is rightly divide the bread from house to house. But receiving the bread to rightly divide is a matter of free will choice of the people, and for the people. So they have to daily, this is the daily ministration, they have to daily provide that bread to be divided from house to house and anything else that the people might need. They're supposed to supply it through charity rather than force. So anyway, what the quote is, the wealthy among us help the needy. Now the word wealthy there, the well-to-do, doesn't mean necessarily that only millionaires contribute. But those who have extra, those who have two coats, they're wealthy compared to those who have no coat. So those who have share with those that do not have enough. And the willing give what each 
think fit. The willing. This is a free will offerings. And the, and the amount they give is what they choose to give. And what is collected is deposited with the president. And this is a Christian president, so he doesn't exercise authority, but it's given to him. And now he's going to rightly distribute it amongst those people he knows. If if it is given to uh, a single minister of ten families, he knows those ten families. And that minister will give some, according to what he thinks is right, to his minister. And that minister has ten ministers he serves. So now he will have a portion from ten different ministers that he can say, oh, let's let's give a little extra over here because they really ha- are having trouble over here in uh, uh, South uh, C- Cape Town and they need some extra help. So we're going to distribute this. These people are about free will offerings, about sacrificing for one another, about helping one another. Another spirit is flowing through them. Not the spirit of judgment, the spirit of uh, corruption, the spirit of killing, and the spirit of control, but the spirit of service. That's the spirit of Christ. And that's a powerful thing. So anyway, he says that uh, it's deposited with the president who succors the orphans and widows and those who, through sickness or any other cause, are in want. And those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning amongst us. And in a word, take care of all who are in need. So now the question is, how do you, how do you decide that? Well, this is, this will, everybody needs to look at this minister and see if he's doing a good job and question whether or not that good job is what they would do and do this amongst each other and figure it out. Because in Ezekiel 16:49, we see, behold, this was the iniquity of the sister Sodom was pride fullness of bread and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy and see this is what South Africa was doing they had a lot of good intentions probably a lot of uh, well-meaning people who wanted to take care of the poor and the needy amongst the black communities and they did this through government. Should have never done it through government. That what they were doing is empowering the government to with this huge bureaucracy in order to make these things happen and to take away the taxes of the people and impose this. And they should have been doing it the other way. And apartheid expanded that spirit because now it was only the government who would do these things. Although I'm sure that wasn't the case. There were probably many people trying to help out the needy of the society, black or white. And uh, But there was a cultural shift where now responsibilities that are really the responsibilities of every man to every other man was now vested in government. And now you no longer have a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. You have some sort of democracy, some sort of common purse where the government imposes a tax and then they divide. You know, those are, that's a government that exercises authority one over the other. And Christ was preaching a government that did not. 
The Pharisees said we have no king but Caesar. So they were okay with that way of Caesar imposing uh, taxes and imposing tariffs and and all these things upon the people so that the money comes into him and then he rightly divides it. The problem is, is this degenerates the people and the government until the people, you know, until the first despot comes along. Well, in South Africa, those despots are now going to probably come out of those people that they have weakened. And uh, their their leaders will be full of animosity and hatred. And you may have another crush taking place before long. So the quicker you repent, start gathering in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like the early church and start doing it to take care of one another in every aspect of need and care. Uh, you know, from your social security to your welfare to whatever. You have to start using that to strengthen the poor. See, when it, when you do this through free will offerings and not through forced offerings, then you start helping people out in a way that they have to repent themselves. You know, if, if you don't see repentance, if you see them continually going the wrong way and doing the wrong thing and abusing their family and and showing neglect, you don't help them as much. They, they don't get as much free bread. You know, you may you may go and make sure their children are, don't starve, but you don't feed the guy who isn't taking care of his family. That you require a repentance on his part to receive the gifts, gratuities, and benefits of a righteous benefactor as opposed to the benefactors of Babylon. This idea of helping one another uh, through free will offerings brings in this spirit of of caring for one another as Christ cared. It brings in this, this spirit of service, of laying down our lives for one another. And it allows Christ's power to work through us, Christ's grace to work through us. If we go to the way of Nimrod and Babylon and the benefactors who exercise authority, it brings another spirit in. It clouds our view and our vision. It weakens us. We're not strengthening the poor and we ourselves are being uh, degenerated because we've become accustomed to living at the uh, uh, by benefits through force rather than through free will offerings. So this is this is critical in understanding the way of the kingdom and the churches throughout the world today have gotten away from that, and it's going to be costing them a huge amount of pain and suffering. And the days ahead, whether you live in South Africa or the United States or Canada or Australia or China or whatever, I see that the China is starting to persecute the Christians there. That that, that persecution, and of course, well, we just got news stories in, in, in certain Muslim countries, Christians are being persecuted. But I'm telling you that the Christians need have need of repentance to become real Christians. And really start taking care of one another. There's a lot of people going around saying they are Christians. And thinking they are Christians because of our pastors being brutes. And, and what what does that mean? It talks about that in the Old Testament of the pastors being brutes. Well, the fact is, is that if you go to the government for your welfare, those are your pastors. Those are your benefactors. If you go to the government for to take care of your parents... Those, those governments are your priests. 
They're your ministers. And they're, they're going to give you gifts, gratuities, and benefits, but they weren't the result of free will offerings, but forced offerings. And with that bread comes a different spirit. The Eucharist of Christ is from free will offerings. Now, the early church that we see appointed by Christ, most of the time they were meeting in homes, yet we know they were working daily in the temple. But the temple itself was not the critical thing. We were to be living stones of a living temple. That's why I say if you join an email group, all you are is on an email group. You have to form that living network where you actually, as a matter of record, sit down with ten other families. Pick a minister, and then that minister sits down with nine other ministers like himself, and they pick a minister, and you, that's the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because the early church was doing this on Pentecost, which was the purpose of Pentecost, as well as the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we talked about earlier, that Paul and Barnabas, when there was a dearth in the land, were able to take up a collection and immediately bring aid to people miles and miles away in another country. And we see Paul doing this on a regular basis. He's, he's moving from Ephesus to Corinth and, and Galatia to Corinth and Corinth to Rome. And, and he goes all these different places. And he is often bringing funds and talking about have the funds already collected so when I get there I can take them to somewhere else. He's also teaching. He's also preaching. We don't hear much about singing, <laughs> but singing's okay. But you cannot neglect the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Because Christ was preaching a government of God. And the more you turn towards the government of God, the more you seek the government of God and His righteousness and try to do more and more for each other through that free will offerings, the closer to the kingdom you get. And that kingdom is from generation to generation. But you're not just born into that kingdom because it has to be both physical and spiritual. It's not just spiritual. You can't just say, because most people mistake emotion for spirit. And actually, the spirit is, is really not emotional at all. If you're having a really, truly spiritual experience, there's very little emotion involved with that. Uh, there's maybe the emotion of contentment. Because he, he's leading you beside the still waters. This is why he says, be still and know. And he's, he's trying to teach you how to do that. And we will help share these things with you when we have feasts and festivals and gatherings here. And show you that. We can't do all that on the radio. But if you're not willing to turn around. Like I said, most of the meetings of the early church were in homes. They were home churches. Because it was ten families. But those ten families were connected. And many of the home churches today, they're just in their little own home group, their little comfortable group. They're not, they don't have free bread uh, being shared amongst all of them. They're still going to Caesar for all their welfare needs. And, and Caesar, or, you know, whoever it is in their country, the government that exercises authority, in a time of need, they, they're going to go to FEMA. You know, which is, you know, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and whatever you call it in your country. They're going to go there for their aid. But the church should be your faith emergency ministry auxiliary. 
And through those tens, hundreds, and thousands, they provide whatever you need. Whether it's protection, uh, whether it's welfare, whether it's uh, health care, and all these things. And the reality is, is that when you're motivated, not by money, not by fear, not by judgment, not by hate, but by love for one another, you're going to come up with different solutions for food and health care and, and defense and all these things. Because you're actually pulling guidance into the hearts of everybody who's sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands based on love for one another. And it's going to give you different solutions. And those solutions are going to be far more powerful, far more effective than the solutions that are now being offered you in the world. I see a lot of people complaining about the world and the governments of the world and the tyranny of the world. And that, so they got to go off and do their own thing. And they imagine that somehow other they do it, they won't become like Saul. Saul was a great guy. But he, he decided to force the offerings of the people. So if you want to force the offerings of your neighbor in order to take care of the welfare of your society or the defense of your society or the the care of the needy of your society, you're you're going to have uh, you're inviting in a spirit that is not of Christ. You're inviting in a spirit and a culture that is not of God, and you will sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. So the early church didn't take oaths. They didn't. They didn't swear. They, uh, but they did take care of one another. They did not pray to the fathers of the earth, and we've explained this uh, many times. The word there, you see, when he says, "Call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father." The word "father" there in the Greek text is the same as the Latin word "patri," which was ad- the address you used when you're talking. To all the senators of Rome, they were all called Cicero, you know, Patri Cicero, Patri Seneca. Uh, they that was the way in which you addressed them. And so when Jesus said that, everybody in the crowd knew exactly what he was talking about. You're going to not pray for free bread from the government because they they don't have any free bread. They don't give you free education. They don't give you free welfare. They don't give you free health care. Everything they give you, they took away from somebody else by force. And you were not supposed to be doing that. And if the church was doing what the early church did, it would really be Christian churches. And like I said, just a hundred years ago, the churches were doing that. And somehow, something crept into our thinking. And our eyes became full of adultery. And we could not cease from sin. And the beguiling, unstable souls accepted that idea. Their hearts they have exercised with covetous practices curse their children. Of course, I'm reading from Second Peter 2.14. And, and we see the same thing in Second Peter 2.3. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And what you're seeing today in every country is this weakening and degeneration of the people because they're not doing what we used to do a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, certainly. We took care of the needy in our, uh, our, our mess. And as soon as somebody says, let's do this through taxation, 
now you have that appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of the rule of force and violence that is going to degenerate uh, us again into perfect savages and find once more a master and a monarch. So this is what repentance is all about, is turning around and going that other way. Well, we might have tr- time for one more uh, question, but we'll probably have to address that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom after uh, another brief break. So we'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Let's get right into this fifth question, uh, which uh, also comes from South Africa. There are many people who studied to go into the ministry and to become pastors of churches. How did the early church leadership operate in the first century? And what did it mean to become a priest or a Levite? Now, of course, we've already talked about the fact that you know, um, Jerome said that the bishops, presbyters, and deacons occupy in the church the same position as those which were occupied by Aaron and his sons and the Levites in the temple. And we've we talked previously in other shows explaining how Jesus was both high priest and king, and so he had he was the Messiah that was able to uh, change everything back to the way it was supposed to be, actually supposed to be from the beginning. But it had been perverted uh, by not just the Pharisees. I don't want to pick on all the Pharisees. But uh, people in general who had allowed these ideas to creep in. That it was okay to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. And somehow, you know, these covetous practices. And these one purses that uh, of socialism and all these things that were destroying the very fabric of societies. And uh, so they wanted to... I turn that all around and go back the other way. And that's what Christ was doing. Uh, the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. We have articles up explaining that in great detail. Uh, Corbanos uh, was, uh, there was a book box called Corbanos. That was where you put your free will offerings. And that was the free bread or bought bread that was rightly distributed from house to house in, in the early church. And even in the Dadachi, uh, we see um, it says, therefore, elect for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, men who are meek and not lovers of money, true and approved, for they also perform for you and the ministry of the prophets and the teachers. So, what are the are these guys just supposed to be giving sermons all the time? No, they're supposed to be practicing pure religion. The word liturgy, if you looked up the word liturgy today, you would probably get all kinds of definitions. But the word liturgy actually in the Greek text, if you go back to those original terminology, liturgy is defined as a prescribed form or set of forms for public religious worship. And again, what is religion? Public religion was the free bread of Rome. That was their public religion. Christianity, from the Roman point of view, was private religion. It was, the, and this is why you see in Justin's uh, apology, he's saying, this is how we take care of the needy of our society in our religion, in our private religion, which, of course, to those who are seeking the kingdom of God, was their public religion. So Christianity was the public religion of the kingdom of God, which was at hand. And these men were appointed the kingdom. 
as my Father has appointed unto me, they were providing for the needy of society and pure religion, as James says, the taking care of the widows and orphans, as Justin says, any needy in your midst. The widows and orphans were taken care of because somehow their families had broken down. I mean, a widow and orphan, an orphan is somebody who, he could be an old man who had no children or grandchildren or no parents or no brothers or sisters. They maybe all died. Maybe they were put to death in the arena during the Christian conflicts. Uh, But he needed help. And so the church was helping him out through the free will offerings of the people. This made the people so much different than everybody in Rome who would say, oh, you need help? Well, here, go to this government agency. Go to this government temple and get help. You know, finding out what they were actually doing in the temples. We have an article up that goes through lots of these different temples. They're just government buildings uh, facilitating government programs. Well, the early church was a government too, but the buildings were made of men. Now, they did have buildings. They did have property at times. But it wasn't about meeting in a big church and singing with a big pipe organ or something like that. It was about taking care of one another. So they, the real stones of the temple of God are living stones. And you have to look out for those men that are approved. True. You know, this is why it says, you know, talks about in Titus is that husbands of one wife and they got a family of good report and, you know, that they, they have some history where you see that they have proven themselves to be steadfast in the ways of Christ. And so that's going to take a little while to figure out who those people are. And they might have gone to seminary, but I, you know, I've had people say, well, I've, I do have a theological degree. And I says, well, now you got me worried because you're, that often is just bringing more baggage than anything else. If We have an article up on the Christian conflict at Preparing You. You can go read that. And it talks about the difference between public and private religion. And uh, and there are plenty of links to what the temples were actually doing. Uh, if you go back, Cerevis, uh and I'll quote here, Cerevis, who returned victorious from having vanquished the kings who had taken part in the Niger against him, he published his cruel edict against the Christians in the year of Christ, 202, the tenth of his reign. But the general's laws of the empire against foreign religions and the former edict of uh, several emperors against the Christians were a sufficient warrant to many governors to draw the sword against them before that time. And uh, he says, uh, we find that the persecution was very hot in Africa two years before under the proconsul of Saturninus. Now, what, what was the complaint? And we have there in our Christian Conflict article, we show you the actual summation of the accusations against the Christians. Again, Christians were accused of being atheists. That meant they they were not putting themselves through oath and affirmation under men who were the judging rulers of society who would tell you what was good and what was evil. And they were bringing them under jurisdictional control of these judges. And they, and the Christians wouldn't uh, sign those oaths and they wouldn't take those oaths. So therefore they were considered atheists because they had no visible gods, no visible judges deciding what is good and evil. 
there God had to be in their hearts and in their minds. So therefore, from the Roman point of view, they were atheists. Because we can't see in your heart and your mind. So anyway, we go through uh, explaining what they were saying in those cases. And, and what the judge said to them. Uh, when they were they were persecuting them and prosecuting them, he says, "We too have a religious. We, we too are religious, and our religion is simple. And we swear by the genius of our Lord the Emperor, and we pray for His welfare, as you also ought to do. But Christians couldn't pray for the welfare of the Caesar because it was provided by force." It was provided by forced offerings. And Christians couldn't do that. That was the foolish thing that Saul did at the time of Samuel. So, you know, and and it goes on. We have more quotes from that case. So you can look it up and you can hear the the comeback of the Christians who were being uh, prosecuted, persecuted, because they would not join in such welfare systems. Now, many of you are bound in such welfare systems. You have not had your day of Pentecost. But you can start now to start taking care of one another. You can, repentance is a process where you start looking more to the church for your welfare and less to the men who exercise authority. And you'll have great opportunities for this for in almost every country you will see. You know, I, I was seeing news reports of there's a lot of people, you know, if you're white in South Africa, you don't have access to the same welfare system that other people do. There's a prejudice being built into the new system that is almost an apartheid the other way. And so that gives wonderful opportunities for those people who say they are really seeking the kingdom of God, black or white, to start coming together and start helping those who not only need help, but want to turn around their lives and head towards this kingdom of God and his righteousness, this system of faith, hope, and charity, and this system that Paul calls the perfect law of liberty. And if you will extend that liberty and that love to others, you will learn more about it and receive the grace that also comes with that effort. So anyway, turning that around is very important. And understanding, again, what they were doing in the Temple of Saturn and all these other places. In Luke fourteen twenty-seven, or let's read uh, 26 first. If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother, and his wife, and his children, and his brethren, and his sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that that's a pretty drastic statement. What he's talking about is that you have to, if you're going to be a minister of Christ, your vanity's got to go. Your pride has got to go. You You have to become, like Christ, this humble servant. He goes on in verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So he's putting a lot of restrictions. His disciples, everybody is a disciple of Christ or should be a disciple of Christ. But he was training up ministers to receive an actual job title that was going to be a actual part of a living government of the people, for the people, and by the people. That's what it says in the Wycliffe Bible. Uh, and to take care of one another through this other kind of system, which almost every nation has gotten away from. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, 
whether he have sufficient to finish it or not. Well, the fact is, is I understand the cost, but I, I have nothing unless people are contributing to what we are trying to do. But you don't send to me. This is the thing that is so strange about our ministry. If we were really a cult, we would want you all to send up to the top guy. <laughs> I'm not the top guy. Christ is the top guy. And the way you give to Christ is to give to one another. And the way you do that is the way Christ said to do it. You sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands where you can actually see where it's going and be accountable for what you're doing. Because in Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a lot of giving, but they were not strengthening the poor. They were giving to men who exercised authority one over the other. They were not practicing pure religion. They were practicing the religion of the world, and uh, which exercised authority one over the other and provided benefits through this system of force, this system of Corbin that was making the word of God to none effect. So in 1433 we say, So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now that requires a lot more explanation as well, but it's very clear that Christ was Christ was prophesied to return every man to his family and every man to his possession. Uh, when we go back to that word liturgy and uh and, and similar words, it talks about uh people being the possession of God and and the, the apostles were to be separate from the world and belong to God. The Levites were to be separate from the world. And they actually, the Levites are mine. And so this is a body of men. The ministers are to be this body of men who come out of the world. And they can do that now. Everybody else can't do that because it's not Pentecost. But they can do that now if they answer the calling of Christ. But they can only, if they're only answering the calling of Christ, if they're coming to serve. And so how do they serve? They start forming this network of love and charity and social welfare and private religion, which is really the public religion of the kingdom of God, to take care of the needy of society through faith, hope, and charity. And with that, you will not only be able to take care of one another in hard times, but you will be able to provide all that you need in order to survive in the grace of, of God. If you continue to follow the ways of exercising authority to take care of one another, of forcing the offerings of the people, and not repent and go back to the ways of Christ, you will become prey to the next monarch or despot or tyrant that takes control of your government. It's not about territory. And ground. It's about. You're the ground. Of the kingdom of God. You're the Adama. You're the clay. And you have to open up your hearts. And bring that. Spirit of Christ into you. You can't force it to come in. But you have to make room for it to come in. That's why Christ talks so much. About forgiveness. And the world world wants to talk. So much about hate. And anger and judgment. And it wants to divide you by race. No, God will divide you by righteousness. Either you're going the ways of righteousness or you're going the ways of unrighteousness. Either you're trying to set men free 
from the demons that haunt them and from the rulers that rule them and from the greed that binds them and the hate that consumes them or you're or you're not and if you're Christ you come that the whole world might be saved but you if you come in that name of Christ you will also bring with you the spirit of Christ it will come with you and it will protect you and guide you now we have several more questions here and i i i dread starting the next one because of the fact that we will not be able to get to it but uh just to give you a heads up on where we're going with this eventually is uh i have always been made to believe that the mark of the beast will be a microchip that the Antichrist will insert under our skin to control our ability to interact with the state. What is the mark of the beast and is it here already? Does God offer us a solution to save us from taking this mark? Well, it tells you very clearly that everybody would have been deceived and and received this mark in their, in their hand or the forehead. And when people talk about... you. You just don't know the Greek, and we're not going to have time. I've got several recordings on this subject. I've got long, detailed study of the mark of the beast. We go through the words, I mean like the word epi, and it says in your forehead and in your hand. Well, that word epi is in, upon, inside. It's translated all kinds of different ways. And the fact is, if you have a number memorized in your head, you've got the number in your head. If you've got a card in your hand with a number on that card then you have the number in your hand and there but the critical thing is the nature of this mark and what it is and the greek word is karagma and it means badge of servitude and see you were told that through covetous practices they would make merchandise of it you would you would go back be entangled again in the elements of the world entangled again in the elements of bondage the rudiments of the world same word rudiments elements and what that means is that if you desire benefits at the expense of your neighbor, then your neighbor can desire benefits at your expense. And whoever it is that you gave the power to take away from your neighbor now has power to take away from you. And so now that's what makes you merchandise. That's what curses your children. Every nation has been doing this as a matter of custom and practice. It wasn't that way 200 years ago. Very few nations did it that way. There were other things that bound us. But almost everybody has gone this way. And that is the mark of the beast. This idea. Just the same as the mark of God. Is the desire to set men free. The desire to be like Christ. To come to serve others. To even love our enemies. That's the mark of God. And if that's in your head. A different set of events will take place. But if the mark of the beast. And the desire to to devour your neighbor, to live at the expense of your neighbor, as we we see in that quote, where you you depend for your benefits on the the life and blood of your neighbor and the labor of your neighbor, then that's going to bring you under this other system. It's a spiritual change that starts taking place in you. And it begins to degenerate you and corrupt you and blind you to the truth. Now, if you start going the other way, just start turning around and going the other way and start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. Something 
that we should all be anxious to do. I mean, it's I mean, it's just the way of Christ from the beginning. It's the way of Moses from the beginning. Free will offerings. Then it begins to alter and change you. And it doesn't, you know, a lot of people say if you take the mark of the beast, you'll be cast into the fire of hell and all this stuff because it says that in the Bible. It doesn't say that. I heard somebody, uh, Sam Harris, the other day talking about Revelation being so scary and he he's he's thinks he's an atheist and he's so much against religion, but he, he misquotes the Bible constantly, but it says that we'll all be cast into this lake of fire. It doesn't say everybody will. It talks about the prophets of the beast being cast into the lake of fire. Those who are promoting it. And then the lake of fire isn't necessarily synonymous with hell. So what does that mean? Well, we try to go through a lot of that in, uh, in, in our detailed study, which is free online. But uh, people have to be careful of understanding that kragma, this scratcher etching, uh, is actually defined as a stamp, as a badge of servitude. And if you have such a number by any country, and they all have them, and they're all linked by treaty from one country to the next, then you've already got the mark of the beast. And you have the number in your head, in your memory, or in your card, in your hand, and, or in your wallet, and you're forced to bow down and serve. And we go into a lot of the words like paneros and, and some of the other words that we see there in the Greek and show you that these words have to do with being where they talk about grievous sore, that's talking about full of labors. It's a corvy system of statutory bondage. Remember, remember they were saying, not be entangled again in the elements of the world, not return to the bondage of Egypt. Well, that's what everybody has done. They've returned to the bondage of Egypt, where they're forced to work, and a portion of their labor is taken away from them right away. They never get any access to it. It's, you know, it's taken away in the form of, you know, book entries, numbers, you know, money, all your money is, I mean, you're, what was in Egypt? All the gold and silver belonged to the government. <laughs> and your labor belonged to the government, at least one fifth of it. And, uh, and your livestock belonged to the government. They could come and take it away. Your land belonged to the government. They could come and take it away because you didn't really own the land because you were in bondage in Egypt. And it's amazing. I know Americans came here to own land in Fee Simple where they actually owned it. It could not be taken away. I'm sure the Afrikaners went to Africa to, in the desire to own land. But you, as soon as you start owning that land collectively where the government has control and authority over it instead of the individual family, you, you've parted from the ways of God and, and the ways of the, the, the kingdom of God, which is from generation to generation not from party to party, <laughs> not from uh, winners of an election to winners of an election, that your election is only to pick a servant. If you're picking a ruler to take away from your neighbors, you're going to end up with a grievous sore. And you're going to, that grievous sore meaning full of labors, you're going to be in a core V system of statutory bondage. And when somebody else takes the reins of government, you will become their slave. And if they don't know the ways of David, they will brutalize and abuse you because you've gone out of the way. But all you have to do is now, right now, repent. Change your thinking. Turn around. Here's the wisdom. Let him that hath understanding 
Count the number of the beast. Well, understand. And they give you this number, 666. Well, this is cryptic. Revelation is one of the most cryptic books in the Bible. I actually believe it was it was not just written by John, but it's actually a compilation of several books. Um, and John may have use these other ones in his writings to explain something and maybe even rewrite them written them a little bit but clearly there's several styles in the greek text but don't want you to get it bogged down in that we want you just to understand that you're already serving and bound in these governments and you can't just change that god can change it but you have to turn around and go another way during during the early days of Christianity, Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome, began to exclude Christians so that they had to they they were called Jews then still, and so he he said that they had to leave Rome, and he he chased them out of Rome, and that's why tent making was so popular with Christians, <laughs> it's because you had to suddenly move. Reality: these things will happen again in our time. But anyway, like I said, we wouldn't really have enough time for this, but we have lots more at the websites. And join the network and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.